So I just want to welcome you back again to the Looking Glass Forum, and I appreciate you checking me out on these on these episodes. And you know, it takes a lot in today's world to really just state your opinion, what what it is, and, and even if you're mistaken, and even if you have a lot to learn, and you have to over the course of time adjust for the facts of reality and adjust for new aspects of history or new information that you hadn't heard before, so that you can really get a clear view of reality, a clear perspective of what is going on in the world around us and what, what is happening in life. And to be informed, it's, it's kind of like knocking down the dominoes because after, after you begin to really pull up the, uh, the strings of it all and you start to really get a good, eye, good look at, at things that are information that's hard to come by, then you start to be really more curious perhaps. You start to wonder about other organizations within you know, the, the private sector or within the government that we don't know anything about. And so there's a lot to learn out there. And I really, I really want to like look more. We've been discussing a lot in these episodes and we've talked a lot about the advent and the development of the United States constitution, constitutional government, a constitutional Republic here in America. We've talked about the American revolution. We've talked about the French revolution and the influence of the, uh, the Jacobins who were, uh, provocateurs, to say the least, who didn't didn't have any interest in in bringing about a fair and happy revolution for France. It wasn't. It didn't. Their intentions weren't there for there to be a wellspring of political liberty and 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 wealth and and um, prosperity for the nation because they would have this huge movement and everyone would benefit. Really, it was a subversive movement that toppled the pillars that stabilized and brought balance and unity to the government, to the enterprise of the French government itself, the, the monarchy, if you will. And when the uh, the people who were in the know, the, the people who, like I said, who had an influence um, that was developing into communism, but the original influence, the original players were the Bavarian Illuminati and their teachings. And we talked about how that developed with with uh, Weisept, Adam Weisept, and how ultimately figures like Friedrich Georg Hegel and the, and the idea of the Hegelian doctrine, the Hegelian dialectic, these ideas, uh, Rousseau, I mean, these are men who are really important philosophers who were involved with the Illuminati as an organization, and their intention was to have a, a back channel, a, a, a network of spies and influence within all the different courts of the royal, of the royal courts of Europe, all the different monarchs, even in, in um, the uh, Islamic and the Caliphate. I mean, they, they want they wanted their reach to extend across the whole world, and they saw they, they saw how they could combine their influence and their and in this combination of political and financial power, they could make sure that the laws and that the policies of all the different kingdoms and realms would be in their hands and this attempt obviously was exposed and they had to backtrack they had to change direction but that kind of will to power that kind of movement towards a amalgamation of pure political and temporal power what they would call plenary powers these are the kind of powers that are that are inherent that they can be wielded as just a matter of de facto control over a populace. Um, 
these men were high noblemen and had vast lands, vast resources, armies at their disposal, and they're vying for power all across. And you know, these are the stories of the Medici. These are the classic legendary stories that have built huge amount of wealth. The Medici were responsible for, for creating a vast banking empire that's centered in Florence. So when you go back to these histories and you begin to look at how the, 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 the power structure exists and how it, it, it tends to extend itself, you have to recognize that America as a republic, as a land that would enshrine human liberty and individual sovereign freedom for each individual as an aspect of, of protected law so that people could find their their rights and their freedoms protected in, in the law and that the, the, every man would be under this law as a matter of justice so there would be no monarchs who could abuse the people no tyrannical autocratic princes who could you know poison one another to death until finally someone takes control and kills off all the others I mean these these kind of moves towards avarice and the uh, the lust for political power have to be curved within for, for a government to succeed in serving its people so our, our government was designed to be a government that would serve the people and would um, exist to make sure that no one was above the law and that that political power could be balanced in such a way so that no one could create an autocratic political rule that was not accountable and that every transaction of power on a national stage would be limited by term limits, by legal enumerated powers, by checks and balances that could require that it a president or a leader or a senator answer for his own actions and also for the the laws that he makes and to the people at the ballot box. So we in here, the geniuses of the, the, the founding, despite what you'll hear from the communists and the left about slave owners and about whatever you want, however you want to paint these men, these men who are coming out of a slave owning world, put an end to slavery all around the world. America did that. The Constitution did that. The, the conscience of a populace, a world populace, was seared by these documents. The French Revolution couldn't do it. The Russian Revolution couldn't do it. But our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and our Declaration of Independence, most importantly of all, from tyranny and from Great Britain, from England, if you will, were documents that were created by Protestant deists. These were men who believed that the reality of God was obvious all around us in life and in the universe. These are men who, who understood the, the advent and the development of science as far as the, the scientific method that was coming into place by men like Sir Isaac Newton and even to some extent the reasoning and the intellectual development and the enlightenment of men like Voltaire. I mean, you have to understand that men like John Locke, these writings that developed this country, these ideas were an intellectual and spiritual revolution against the tyranny of the old world that had lasted thousands of years, going back to the Romans. So the idea that, that there was a divine right of kings was broken by our government. So these powers, this power structure, there at the Vatican, who wants to coronate all the different kings of the world, their prelates and the history of the Va Vatican City or the papacy really has got to come into view. And a lot of people out there are really good Catholics. 
And I really don't pick a bone with people, who Catholics, if they're going to Mass, they're trying to serve the tenets of their religion properly, they're trying to do right by God and, and to absolve their, their, their sins as far as their church is telling them. They're doing what they can do in the service of religion. And it's the same way with Muslims. I don't fault them for you know good Muslims there in Afghanistan who, who bow down every day and who, who do the things that their religious doctrine and mores prescribe for them. And no one can blame them because that's their conscience. They're trying to do the right thing. So I, I don't, I don't have a problem with Catholics. I mean, I, I would like them to learn more about it and have the courage to challenge some, some of that, that thinking there. But it, it's irregardless of the fact that the Vatican itself is accountable for a legacy, a long history, a long period of being geopolitical activists, and the Curia and the men around who serve the papacy, the knighthood orders who receive great treasures and who, who work really hard in the name of religion to serve the Pope as the vicar of Christ on earth. And he supposedly, according to Roman theology, sits in the place on the throne of Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ's church, and he rules in Jesus Christ's stead. So in, the, in, the, in ruling in the stead of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the Messiah himself, who's in heaven, is this man the Pope. And he rules Christ's church, his kingdom, his empire here in the world for Christ and does everything on his behalf. And that's that's their constitution. That's their doctrine. That's where they're coming from. They believe that they have the absolute right and unmitigated divine authority of heaven prescribed arbitrarily to them like a blank check to do as they see fit. And so you can see that the ability for this kind of thinking, this kind of ideology to be abused is enormous. And what we'll get to see over the course of these episodes is that the enormity of the abuses of these uh, these tyrants, these ecclesiastical megalomaniacs, as is a book, that's the title of a book, you should check it out, Ecclesiastical Megalomania. These men who believe that they are empowered by God, or they're standing next to the man who's empowered by God and, and who's whispering in, in their ear and, and giving them the, the divine right to commit any, you know, any, any innumerable, unlimited sins. They're just pardoned because this is what the vicar of Christ has the power to do. He's always had this through the middle ages, through the dark ages. The Pope has always had the power to appoint you as a saint, say a little prayer, and, and appoint you to become a saint in the Vatican, to be among the community of saints, to, to you know, beatify you. So you'll be beatified by the Pope and so that everyone stands aside in heaven and you go up and stand up on a higher chair because the Pope down earth puts you up. Or the Pope has the power to cast you into hell and to resign you into purgatory or into Hades. And that's what the Pope and his men were busy doing all through the Middle Ages. Because you have to understand that the Inquisition and the religious persecution, the religious murder of the papacy, of the Vatican, lasted in one form or another for over six centuries. So we're talking about 600 plus, 600 maybe 10 years of constant persecution of other Christians, of gypsies, of Jews, of, of Muslims, of, of American Indians, Aztecs in the form of these the Spanish conquistadors, which was just an extension of the Inquisition. These were heretics. You see a heretic, you throw him in the fire, you burn him, you burn his family, you rip their tongue out, you gouge their eyes out. Read the history of the Inquisition. This is what they believed. They had no soul and no conscience. They, they abused and murdered and raped and pillaged and killed their enemies who they proclaimed were the enemies of Christ. And they did this for centuries. So these institutions of tyranny and hate, and these vile institutions 
these kingdoms, these principalities that are set up in Europe, the Vatican's throne set up in Rome there, they have not changed. They are not going to change. They're timeless, unchanging institutions. The Council of Trent declared that all Calvinists and Baptists and all Puritans and all, all those other Christians out there who like to read the Bible, these men who will ultimately be led later on by Martin Luther, by Calvin, John Calvin, John Huss, and these reformers, John Wycliffe, got to put him in there, most of them were all killed by the Vatican for reading the Bible, for, for asking why, if the commandments required that we don't have any idols, then why the Catholic Church had all these idols of, of uh, Jesus and Mary, and everyone would kneel down to them and pray to them. And people would say that sometimes the, the statues of Mary would cry, and it was miraculous. Today, people are so enamored with this cult, they'll see pictures of Mary in their fruit or in their toast. Take a picture, you see it on the, on the news. A picture of Mary in the clouds. You know, It's in their minds, this, this idolatry. And if you call it idolatry and, you're, and you're, you're pointing out what's obviously incorrect, the er erroneous nature of this false worship, then, you know, of course, you're a hater. You know, how could you, how could you demean or speak ill of these, these different statues? You have the Mary of Guadalupe. I mean, you have people who get pissed. You have every, every time I'm in jail. I don't know how many times you've been in jail. I've been in jail several times. And every time I see... I'm in jail. I see guys with tattoos who are in gangs who have rosaries around their neck or they have rosaries tattooed on their arms or, or the, the, the Mary of Guadalupe tattooed on them because these are iconic images of holiness that bestow upon you the power of heaven. If you, if you wear the amulet around your neck or if you, if you say the, the, you know, Hail Mary seven times or if you, you do these superstitious things, then you apparently get a special blessing from heaven or you'll be protected. These are the kind of bizarre, cult-like, superstitious, religio-cultic practices and beliefs that are espoused by the Roman Catholic Church. And, and Tetzel, that's why Martin Luther went completely nuts with them, because they were selling indulgences, future indulgences. In other words, they could give you a little piece of paper. It's about the size of a dollar. It was written with, with uh, information and, and a serial number and a, and, and a little and little words. It was like money. And you could trade it around. You could give it to other people. And you bought it. And you bought these little indulgence papers. And if you were going to go do a murder or do adultery on your wife or to commit some future sin, you were covered. You had paid for this indulgence. You were covered in heaven. Heaven would turn away and look away as you committed this sin. And you didn't have to worry about it. You wouldn't have to worry about dealing with that sin. You, you, you go get the indulgence. The moral degeneracy of such horrible religious practice cannot, cannot be fully understood. I mean, the fact that they would treat God with such disgusting and reckless and horrifying indecency is really what it is. So we're going to talk more about this. And the Protestant ethic within America is, is quickly fading. The power of, on the university level and in, in academia, the power of, in, in the culture of um, Roman Catholic holidays and tradition is unmatched anywhere in the world, even in places in Europe that have, have been Roman Catholic places for a long time have not been entranced and enthralled by the pageantry and the, the, the decoration full on, the full court press of these practices within culture so that every news channel, every media apparatus, even Google will have Santa Claus shooting over the, the little houses that are shaped like Google letters. It's ubiquitous. 
the idea that even people who have no idea what the Bible is or what Roman Catholicism is or what Jesus is or what religion they like the elves they have the movie elf with the funny guy and he's from Santa the Santa comes out he screams like a kid does Santa you right Santa because we've all been totally brainwashed since we were young I remember when I was a kid it was like the little it was the uh, the Grinch who stole Christmas cartoon by Dr. Seuss right so the propaganda of Romanism has been percolating up through our culture for some time. You have to understand before that, before the 50s, before the, the silver screen, Humphrey Bogart, and then Bing Crosby, chestnuts and then everything fire, right? The whole thing, like the, the songs, like Jingle Bells, like that whole era of music was culturally embedded within you know, the, the 40s, the 50s, after World War II, the 60s. Before that, there were areas in the country where people practiced Christmas and there were areas in the country where people didn't. It, there was a, a delineation. But after that point, after the silver screen, after the, that era of intense propaganda, and then they're beautiful, nobody can get them out of their head, they're beautiful Christmas carols. People come up to your house in that, in that time and it's sweet because they want a Christmas carol and they're all partaking in this religious devotion and it's a, it's a one-way religious perspective that presupposes that Roman Catholicism and that ultimately the priests down in your parish who are being overseen by the archdiocese in your area, which who are being overseen by cardinals who are going back to the curia and they're, they're being informed by the staff there in the Vatican and ultimately they're, 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 they're enacting the hierarchy of the power structure of the Pope. That's why you go down to the parish and you have Father Smith down there. Father Smith, and he's really not married. He doesn't have any kids, and you really don't want him to be around your kids. But everyone calls him Father. It's kind of, it's kind of like, it's a little bit creepy. It reminds me of the Mithraic cult, the Paternus, that was the leader of the uh, of the uh, the Mithraic, the Mithraeum. If you went down to your secret your secret Mithraic cult there in Rome, you'd have the Paternum, who was the the father. And later on, you know, in 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 a similar fashion, the priests down at the Roman cathedral or what have you is called father this or father that and everyone accepts that he can hear our sins and he can absolve us and tell us it's okay you know you'll be all right and say these say these hail marys and then you know you're absolved and you take care of your you you dealt with it with with heaven you and heaven are squared now because you went through that confessional booth and that's that's been long been the teaching and people just go through it it feels good or it's psychological whatever but you have to understand that before the before America had a Roman church, it had fought for the independence of the Reformation church. And that was the, the ability for the, the church, for the Methodists, the Presbyterians, and the Baptists to worship God as they saw fit. There was a religious freedom now. So instead of the tyranny of Europe that said, you can have no other religious practice other than what the Pope offers. That's it. And if you have a different doctrine, then that's heresy. And then we bring the Inquisition and storm in your house. We tear up your children. The Inquisition killed children as young as 10, 12. It's just a, it's just a fact of history. You can go back. We'll, we'll look more into it. We have to be accountable to the truth of history. And so those same doctrines that led these men, I mean, smart men like St. Augustine, he was a proponent of killing heretics. You just got to go look in his books, go read, read his works. These were the, the founding theologians of this cult doctrine said that you got to kill off heretics. It's like dealing with a disease. Sometimes you got an amputate a few, amputate a few limbs. That's what he said. So these are your theologians, Roman church, Roman Catholics, Merry Christmas. That's you. That's your doctrine. That's your inquisition doctrine. 
Now that now it had now you put up some Christmas lights and it's it feels good. You gotta buy the it's addictive. You gotta buy the presents. You gotta have a list of people, or some people are on there and some people aren't on there. It's like Santa's list. Because some people are naughty, right? Naughty or nice. He knows if you've been good or bad. I mean, there's a lot of power Santa has to come down your chimney. There's a lot of magic. There's a lot of Christmas magic, isn't there? So I'm trying to look in my Bible and read about Moses and Abraham and King David, and I'm not seeing a lot of Christmas magic in there. But you like it. It's your practice. It's your ritual. It's a Roman ritual. So it's not Christianity. It's not biblical. It's got nothing to do with Christ. They have Christ up there, and he's always crucified and nailed up and bleeding. If you're going to be in a Roman Catholic church and you're going to see Christ, you're going to see him bleeding. You're going to see him looking very sad with the crown of thorns in his head. And, and, and you know, there he is, punished, constantly being punished. He's, he's painted that way. He's, 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 he's chiseled into marble in the most horrifyingly beautiful way with, you know, Michelangelo techniques, right? Are you going to be up there sculpting the suffering savior? That's all you get. You don't get him on the throne, you know, anyway. Because the power of Rome was to destroy Christ. That's what Pontius Pilate did. Pontius Pilate, he destroyed Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't recognize him as the king. He went and did the will of Caesar and killed him, crucified him. That's what happened to him. So that's, that's where Romans, Rome's legacy stands and their particular reason. So in order to kind of like bring us full circle and introduce this, this episode, we have to talk about what is underlying the history, what is really in the background, the, uh, the prequel, the precursor information that defines what's happening in, in, in the history regarding Abraham Lincoln. So we're tr- we have to understand that for centuries, for many, many centuries, each succession of the papacy, each new pope took on and was enthroned and enshrined with the power to become the vicar of Christ and to, to rule Christ's political kingdom, Christendom, on earth. So all the different kings, all the different Holy Roman emperors, all the, all the different political principalities that the Vatican would set up and tend to and if they were disobedient, then he would tear them down. And this was for the furtherance of the temporal power of the Pope. So you have to understand that the doctrine of the spiritual and temporal power of the papacy becomes into focus at this point. And we have to recognize that he wasn't just some kind of preacher over there, some kind of bishop there in Rome, just taking care of his flock there in Rome. He had built up that the papacy, each individual subsequent Pope had built up an accumulation and growing amalgamation of different fiefdoms, different titles, and different extensions of his political power here on earth. So he had the right, in their opinion, according to their legates and their scholars, to rule over every kingdom on earth. So every every single principality in Europe, every single crowned head, had to bow and kiss the ring of the Pope as an extension of the Pope's political and spiritual power. So the Pope wasn't just a spiritual leader, he was a political king also. And he considered himself to be king of kings. So if anyone went against the policy and the political machinations of the papacy, then you could expect that the different kings who were obedient to the Pope will go to war with you. And in this case in point, everyone knows this about history, that Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth there in England, was a Protestant. She read the scriptures. She learned doctrine of the the Baptist and and the Puritan Christians 
from the Protestants about the salvation through faith and not through works. So there wasn't some kind of prescribed rituals, some certain holidays, some certain church that you had to belong to, some certain priest you had to confess your sins to. Your personal relationship was private between you and God. That's what the whole Protestant movement was about. It cut the, the Roman church, the priests, and the Pope, and, it, and the whole, all the cardinals, it cut them out of your religion. It cut them out of, you, you would go and pray to the Lord yourself and, and to seek the Lord on your own without a priest. And you would confess your sins to the Lord on your own without a priest. And, and you, would, you would no longer, and since you would become the person who was the high priest of your relationship with the Lord, then you would no longer need any of those trappings and distractions that were presented by the Roman ecclesiastical power that had built itself up by enslaving people by religion. They enslaved people by the idea that they, that they needed to pay for their own sins by whipping themselves. Many, many monks, many orders of monks would, and friars would have to wear uh, sackcloth their whole lives and eat porridge and live in a, in a, in a, in a, in a abbot. And they had to shave their head and they could, and they had, they would whip themselves in order to, to try to expiate some of their guilt, their sin guilt. So when they would go to purgatory, because everyone would have to die and go to purgatory, where they would have to burn in the, in the flames of purgatory, and, all, and that was where you would purge. You would purge all your sins in purgatory before you could go to heaven. So people were terrified of dying because they didn't want to go into purgatory. They believed it's like the old the Greco-Roman Hades. If you ever watched that, that, that Disney cartoon Hercules, you know, they had, the, they had um, James Wood was, was the Hades guy. Anyway, the whole point is, is that there is no purgatory. And you no longer need the Roman church to, to be involved in your relationship with the Lord. And so as soon as you find this out, because you're reading the Bible and you learn that Jesus Christ doesn't have a vicar and he's the only head of his own church and he's the head of that church from heaven. And he and, and, and this guy who's down here pretending to be Christ's legitimate prince on earth is really just an antichrist, you know, just a false prophet, just a man who's a puppet, who's pretending to be in the church business, but he's really in the geopolitical power business. So as we start to approach this notion of the political power and dominion of the Pope, the spiritual and temporal dominion of the papacy, we are approaching a doctrine that many of the kings of old and the knighthood orders would bow and kiss. They would bow and kiss the ring of this spiritual and temporal power, and they would obey it. And they would obey it as if it was God. As if it was the voice of God, they would obey the Pope as if he was the voice of God. And that's what we're getting down to. This whole fatherhood, this whole papacy, that's what papacy means. It means fatherhood. If you're, if you're in uh, Italy and you say, you know, your papa, your papacy, right? Father, the Holy Father is the Pope. And if you look in the scriptures, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he said, call no man on earth father because your father is in heaven. And it's kind of like, it's kind of a strange thing to say because you're like, what about my dad? I mean, my dad, his name is William. He's a, he's a smart, brilliant guy. He's a wonderful guy. He's my dad. So can I not call him father? What he meant was you will have no spiritual father on earth because our real spiritual father is in heaven. So we will have no holy papacy, no holy father. So he was, even Christ himself in his own teachings was denouncing the future rise of this papacy there in Rome, this Roman political power that would take on like sheepskin, like wolf in sheep's clothing would take on the appearance of Christianity and, and of a, a Christian bishopric and act as though he was a Christian bishop. And really he's just a continuation of the Babylonian mystery cults. And we'll get into that later. But we need to really focus in on here as we're going through some of these episodes on how 
this doctrine of the infallibility, the doctrine of the temporal and spiritual power of the papacy, how it comes into play in, in American history. And we begin to see that in the discussion about Abraham Lincoln. And as we look in here, we're going to do some, some interesting speakers, as we always do. And we're going to discuss the little-known suppressed history of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And it turns out that the men who were behind the assassination of Abraham Lincoln were, in fact, Georgetown priests, learned men, men who were, who had, who were sick of the direction that Abraham Lincoln was taking the country. And Abraham Lincoln was a Protestant man, a Bible-believing man, a man who ended slavery, did the Emancipation Proclamation. He's a really prolific polemoth of a man, and he was hated by the Vatican, and he was hated by the priests of Rome, hated with a white-hot hatred, That, in so much as that they would go as far as to even work to have him killed by their emissaries and by their servants, and that's exactly what they did. And again, we'll see the uh, the, the Jesuit order lurking in the background of the, the killing of this man, this profound, when he was shot in Ford's theater. And as we were saying, we can see this doctrine playing out also when we were talking about Queen Elizabeth I, when they, uh, when the the Roman Catholic king of Spain and his queen, I want to say Isabella, but I don't want to mix up the, the facts, but the, the, the king of Spain sent his armada of a thousand ships to come and to do a land invasion of, the, of, of England to, to basically ultimately kill Queen Elizabeth I and end her Protestant reign because she was silencing, she was making it possible for the Reformed faith to exist and, and she ultimately she would bring about what was necessary to have uh, the Anglican, Anglican Church brought about, which was a, a Protestant, a new church denomination that separated from the Roman papacy. That's what the King of England, Henry Tudor, wanted to do. He wanted to set up his own English church. Why, would the, why, why should England have a Roman church, an Italian church? That was the question. Why should Florida have a Roman church? Florida's not Roman. But no one asked that question. They just go down to the Roman Catholic Church and they participate in Roman rituals and they just, they just take in and they're imbibed and they ingest that spiritual poison into their system and they just, it's, it's sweet, it's gumdrops, it's candy canes and they don't understand the occult doctrine that's in play. So ultimately the Spanish Armada was sunk and it failed, but it showed the intentions of the Roman papacy that they were going to bring Queen Elizabeth back into control and they were going to put a new king on the throne who would serve the Pope because she would not. So and if you, if you watch the, uh, the movie, um, the Golden Age, Queen Elizabeth, she even says, the, the actor, um, brilliant woman, she even says her lines uh, in, in the movie, she says, in the bows of that ship, of those ships in the Armada that are coming, in the bows of those ships is the Inquisition. And they were going to bring the Inquisition straight to England. So there would be people being burned at the stake, heretics being rooted out, people being tortured to, to uh, recant and to point at other people who were involved in their heresy. And, and so you can imagine the, 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 the psychological terror and, and, the, and the absolute psychological trauma that goes along with the Inquisition when your, your, your limbs are being pulled out and your fingers are being pulled off and your feet are being burned. You're literally, your feet's literally being held to the fire, hold their feet to the fire. That's what like Sean, Sean Handy likes to say every night on the news. You get the, you get the, Republi you get the uh, Republican Catholics and you have the Democrat Catholics and they pretend like they're fighting each other. 
but in the end it really just builds up the power of the Georgetown set. So let's talk about the papacy. This is something you're not allowed to talk about. This is no go. This is this is the kind of discussion that gets you on a list. And ultimately we're gonna do it. We're Americans. We're gonna challenge the power of this jewel-encrusted, megalomaniacal, ecclesiastical order that, that we have to look at. And ultimately, we have to look at what did George Washington say about the papacy? What did Thomas Jefferson say about it? What did these men who are building the American, the democratic system here, this, this, this democratic republic, what did they think about the Inquisition? They were building a place where we were free to have our own religious point of view. It was protected under law. It was a place where you could not have men burnt at the stake for heresy. It was illegal. You, you would never have an inquisition under the U.S. Constitution. You could face your accusers. So people couldn't just snatch you out, out of the dark of the night and arrest you and disappear you because you were called a heretic. Those kind of absolute depravity and miscarriages of justice, those kind of religious persecutions and religious murders were going to be done away with under this new system of political liberty that we would see here in the uh, the declaration of independence ultimately from away from the tyranny of a catholic king and ultimately we would fight to the death for our right to rule ourselves for self-rule so we're going to go into this episode we're going to discuss the suppressed history of the assassination of abraham lincoln and what you won't find out even when you go and watch robert redford's movie um, uh, about because really ultimately um, the first woman who was ever hung was the mother of one of the suspects there who we'll talk about and she was actually involved implicitly in planning and, and, and acting the assassination and, and helped out helped them escape and everything that's why she was hung because she was actually involved as a traitor and having her own president killed in order to serve the whims of the priests and ultimately the papacy. So we're going to get into that, and this is probably something you never heard before, so now it's an opportunity for you to learn something new and expand your mind out of that the darkness of ignorance. Okay, here we go. So we can track with the program here. This is David Mould, and he's doing an interview here on a program called Layman for Religious Liberty. It's not my case. It's a case that was first made by one of the nine men that sat on the military tribunal that executed the conspirators in the Lincoln assassination, Brigadier General Thomas Harris. He wrote two books on the subject. There have been others written, one by a former Roman Catholic priest, which concurs. But before we get off on that, I feel the need to apologize here. To apologize for taking so long on your program last week to develop the thought that when I speak about Catholicism, I speak about its history, I speak about its dogma or doctrine, and not necessarily about its people or personalities. I do believe that there are genuine Christians in all denominations, including the Roman Catholic Church, people who love humanity, who would give their lives for humanity. However, on the matter of the traditional dogma of the church and its bloody history, that any student who took the time to look at the 1500-year period beginning from, the, from Justinian's lifting of the Bishop of Rome to being the head of the church to 1798 when Napoleon took the Pope captive. Um, anybody who spans that history and looks at the estimated 100 million heretics that were slain by the Roman Catholic Church has to conclude 
that there is something fundamentally and diabolically wrong with that institution. When I said it was the epitome of evil, I meant it. Now to Lincoln. President Lincoln's assassination. One would first have to go to motive before one goes to the facts. And I think it is clear to say Lincoln's contemporary, Pius the, Pope Pius IX, uh, put forth a list of what he called the syllabus of errors and re-emphasized the church's antipathy or hatred for the foundation principles of the United States of America. Freedom of the press was anathema. Freedom of speech was anathema. What you had happening was this upstart country, the United States of America, emerging, admittedly at a time when Rome had received a wound, but emerging and Rome felt it necessary to condemn the principles, separation of church and state. I mean, I can quote you Pius IX repeatedly, and I will do that in subsequent programs so that people can understand. And indeed, millions of Roman Catholics are members of that church who don't have a clue about the principles that Rome espouses. All right, so the motive, President Lincoln was simply the president of the country which most flew in the face of established dogma or established teaching. In, if you were to boil it down to its bare essentials, I would say this. Roman Catholicism believes in the union of church and state. The United States Constitution believes in just the opposite. It states Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's the first amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Rome says join, and not only join, but Rome says we have the authority to use force to compel the conscience. Pius reiterated that in his syllabus of errors. The United States took the position that based on the lessons of history, wherever you have a union of church and state, and by the way, which is why we ought to be very careful about any movement in our country about placing political power in the hands exclusively of Christians. I'm not, I may not have said that correctly, but if history teaches us any lesson, it is that where the church gains political control, blood inevitably flows. That, unfortunately, is the sad 1,500-year history of Roman Catholicism. The facts about President Lincoln are this. Lincoln developed a, defended a former Roman Catholic priest by the name of Charles Chiniqui in the 1850s. I mentioned that last week. Chiniqui broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic bishop spread a lot of lies about Chiniqui. One of them included rape. And Lincoln defended him the night before the verdict was read. Somebody's conscience bothered them in Chicago. They came to Urbana, Illinois, and confessed that the whole thing had been a scam by the bishop. Lincoln is, and it's recorded in Chiniqui's book. And by the way, why aren't these books available to us today? That's one Why can't we read... Rome's responsibility. That, no, this book was written by Brigadier General Thomas Harris, but believe it or not, his bigger work is actually much more thrilling to me. You know, his major work goes into so many things. Um, it is a known fact, if you go to Surratt House today in Maryland, this is the boarding house. The, the United States government traced the plot to the boarding house of the Surratt. It was a Catholic boarding house. In fact, where's the original wanted post? Let me show. On the matter of President Lincoln, 
we need to understand one concept further, and that is the concept of counter-reformation. To undo the things accomplished by the Reformation. Now, unfortunately, most people don't even know Old Testament history and can mark out the defining points in the history of, of the Jews, let's say, and the creation of man and so forth. But there is just tremendous gap in knowledge from the point at which Christ ascended to the point at which he's to come. You know, let's say 2,000 years have gone, and most people don't even have a concept of what the Protestant Reformation was, you know, and it's unfortunate. But going back to Lincoln, President Lincoln, it was on most of the eight people were tried, okay? Four of them were hung by the United States government. If you go to the original wanted poster issued within days of Lincoln's assassination, there it is, yeah, all right? Yeah. You will see there are three people. David Herald, who gave himself up. John Wilkes Booth was killed. The third man, John Surratt. Let's take the case of John Surratt. John Surratt fled, and he was educated by the Jesuits, okay? Okay. All right, as was Fidel Castro, and we can get into that at a later time, as to who really is running the show in Cuba and why, okay, or who brought it to power, okay? But let's stick with Lincoln. Yes. Abraham Lincoln's conspirators, or the conspirators in his assassination, four were hung, four went into prison in what they call the Dry Tortugas in Florida. Surratt was traced by the State Department from the Ford's Theater to Burlington, Vermont, he took a ferry over to Montreal. Bear in mind, this is the man. All of America is looking for these three that you see on the wanted poster. Surat is met by two Roman Catholic priests, and this is documented. This is documented American history. Mm -hmm. It should be taught in every schoolroom. Rome has succeeded in hushing it up. If you go to Harris's major work, yes. you will find all the details. And again, this is not some fly-by-night historian. Oh. This is one of the nine men. He's wanted, but he's met by Roman Catholic Met by two Roman Catholic priests, Priest. Father Boucher uh -huh. and Lapierre. Uh -huh. One was the canon to the bishop of Montreal. Yes. They hid him for five months in Montreal while all America looked for him. He's hid him. Within a stone's throw of the bishop's house, American history, okay? Oh. Five months later, they disguised him and put him aboard a steamer called the Peruvian, oh. headed for Britain. Uh -oh. He got off in Liverpool. He went to the oratory of the Holy Cross, which was a Roman Catholic boarding house, where he was sheltered. The State Department lost track of him there. When they picked up his trail, he was in Rome the little village of Velitieri. He was, in fact, in fact, I have a picture here of John Surratt in the uniform of the Pope's personal bodyguard. You have that? Yes, I do. When caught by the State Department, <laughs> here is John Surratt, and by the way, his boast, his boast, but here is Surratt. This was his boast on board the Peru. Let's give a, give a close-up. We oh, this killed, is the man. This is the man. We killed Lincoln, the nigger's friend. That was the boast. And all of this that I'm telling you, if you want the, you know, good reading, the transcript of the trial of John Surratt. So we're just going to leave the uh, the discussion there. And you can see the, the, the history of the background events in this whole discussion are very well nailed down. And they can even go into the, the transcripts of the trial. And you can see in great detail how uh, how much 
the Roman Catholic hierarchy was involved in this conspiracy to make sure that Abraham Lincoln would be killed. He, he had accomplished a lot already. I, I think it was a matter of a vendetta at this point since they risked, risked, uh, put at risk so many different assets and went to such great lengths to, uh, to just have him offed. I think they were the Vatican and the Roman power structure was absolutely furious with Abraham Lincoln. As we were talking about before, and we'll present more details about this, and we'll try to present more speakers and more teachers, and we have to find people who have the knowledge about these subjects and who have the courage to bring them about. Um, there's a lot of videos on YouTube that they call this idea uh, um, that when we present the historical fact that Abraham Lincoln's um, killing, his assassination, was directly tied with Pope Pius IX and the Vatican, uh, people like to pick at it and call it crazy and say how, how uh, you know, how inconceivable it is for them to to accept the fact that there could be such a connection. But even when when Booth at Ford's Theater jumped over the edge after shooting Lincoln, jumped over the uh, railing down into the uh, the lower floor, he yelled out in the crowd, "Six semper tyrannis," which means "thus always to tyrants." And of course, it's a Latin phrase. And it goes to his his training as a young man, and his Catholicism, and his upbringing in parochial schools. So we have a lot of documentary history that we have to establish here. Uh, people like to point at other um, ideas that, that they were angry, they, they, that they were Confederate men, or that you know they had some other uh, ulterior motive behind wanting to kill Lincoln. But it was such a risky, kind of fanatical attempt to uh, to uh, kill him that it really goes to a reflection of the fury and the, the how incensed their superiors were and how desperate they were to really get the man get rid of him altogether and it goes back to the the infallible doctrine the, the doctrine of the Pope's spiritual and temporal power over all the world over all kingdoms and all nations and his right to ultimately kill kings who are not obedient to the Vatican because they're the church of God. They're the, the righteous, righteous pathway by which people absolve their sins and go to confession and take communion and do all their sacraments. So the power and the prestige of the church is, is omnipotent in their mind. It cannot be questioned or cannot be resisted and if you resist the will of the Pope of Rome, then you're resisting God, and and you should be consigned to hell. And that's what the Inquisition is for. And that's what the um, the assassination uh, um, squad of the the Knights of Malta, the, the the Pope's Knights, the Papal Knights, all their men, their military ranks, their military orders, and they're set up as a phalanx. Who and their effort is to make sure that the enemies of Christendom, the enemies of the Pope, it's like a crusade. And if you stand against them, then you, you have to be annihilated by the religion of God and, you know, with their crucifixes out. So we have to discover more about these doctrines, these geopolitical military doctrines that are underpinning the supposed religious uh, presentation that we see, the, the, the sanctimonious and polished pageantry of them and their silk gowns and, and, their, and their gold jewelry ultimately 
enriching themselves off the religious superstition and the supposed sorcery by which they hold other people's families in hell or you know in purgatory so you're you're going to say extra mass you're going to pay the priests for high requiem masses so you can you know they can do their magic on them they do their thing and then supposedly if you do that enough times you'll build up enough merit within the church you know to get your your dead relatives out of purgatory so i don't know why the pope doesn't just say a mass and release all of them from purgatory. I guess you have to pay. It's like a, it's a pay for, uh, it's like a kidnapping, a spiritual kidnapping routine that they do for you if you believe in that system. And, and many people do. They're totally laden with the chains of bondage of this kind of spiritual darkness. So uh, let's go ahead and take a look at some more discussion on these lines here. And this is going to be a courageous discussion. Uh, we're going to look at some of these guys are going to do a little layout of Father Chinakwi's books. We can't really go through the entire thing, but it's important that you hear what you don't normally hear, which is dissent, which is criticism of a system of geopolitical and spiritual, religio-cultic tyranny over your minds. And so that's why you know, every year around the winter solstice, or is the winter equinox, whatever that is, it's the, the longest nights of the year, which, you know, the sun is the darkest if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. And it's at this point when we have December 25th, which is the birthday of Mithra. If you go back to the Greek, um, and, 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 and when they ultimately prescribe this as the birthday of Jesus Christ, everyone's supposed to buy gifts and kiss under the mistletoe and all this kind of stuff. And this whole mythology arises out of this, the cult of sun worship, astrotheology. And we have to understand that, that, you know, wealthy people can afford to buy gifts, uh, poor people cannot. So it's, they're strained under the pressure culturally and socially to participate in this. And, and all the other kids want to have presents too. Why can't they all have presents? Let's have a shoebox with, you know, pencils and oranges in it and we'll give it to the poor kids so they can all participate in this religious um, devotion, which is, of course, anti-Christian. No one told you that it's unbiblical. It's Babylonian, it's Egyptian. Ultimately, the Roman system has syncretized it with Christian beliefs so that everyone in the world is starting to engage in this cult system of darkness and deception. It's not popular to say it, and it takes courage to accept it, but ultimately, this is the path to freedom. This is what frees your mind. This is what, how, when Christ, it says Christ gives you freedom, that you're free indeed, and this is what they're talking about. So here, let's take a listen to this interesting um, composite here. I like it when they do the um, the anonymous, you know, computer voice reading of the uh, the Chinookie material. So let's just take a listen. Americans know Abraham Lincoln was an American statesman and the 16th president of the United States, term 1861 to 1865. He was born in Hardin County, Kentucky, and grew up in Indiana. In 1830, his family moved to Illinois, and in 1837, Abe began practicing law in Springfield. His upright moral character had earned him the nickname Honest Abe. Abraham, an avid reader of the scriptures who often cited biblical passages, held no denominational alliances and developed a keen awareness of the dangers posed by the Catholic Church and its dreaded Jesuit order. 
most Americans do not know about the Jesuit connection to the Lincoln assassination. People who were close to Lincoln, including Samuel Horse, inventor of the telegraph, and several American ambassadors, knew of the Jesuit hatred toward him and warned him ever increasingly right up to the point of his murder. This article has been written to recover the truth of history which has been omitted and obscured. From the public view by the American government, the Catholic-influenced writers of history, and even publicly suppressed by Lincoln himself, for reasons we will later see. You may all realize that a leopard does not change its spots, and this Romish predator just waits in the grasses for the prey to come unsuspectingly along. You may not see the danger now and when you finally do, it is too late. The modern Catholic Church and the Jesuit order are outwardly very docile and seemingly benevolent. They have lured society into a deep sleep. As the writers of our history books and as teachers in our schools, they have all but erased the jaded, yeah wicked, past which is a testimony to their true character. It is our hope that this publication will wake some from their learned ignorance of the truth. Much of the quoted testimony against the Jesuit order that we will present here is from Charles Chinaqui, a Catholic priest, who befriended Lincoln and warned him of the Jesuit plot to take his life. We will quote heavily from Chinaqui's book entitled, Fifty Years in the Church of Rome, available as a free download in text format by clicking here. Chinaqui gives us a reason why he wrote his book exposing the wicked deeds of the Catholic Church a reason which should be even more pertinent to us today. Because modern Protestants have not only forgotten what Rome was, what she is, and what she will forever be, the most irreconcilable and powerful enemy of the Gospel of Christ, but they consider her almost as a branch of the Church whose cornerstone is Christ. Ches Chinaqui Fifty years in the Church of Rome We echo this truth to all Protestants. If one can still rightly call them that since they really do not protest anything anymore, and to the ear of the deceived modern Catholic as well, who may not know of the true and wicked history behind the Church at Rome, many people had left Europe to escape the clutches of the Roman Church, coming to America to obtain truly free religious liberty by which to enjoy their Christian worship. This article is intended neither to bash Catholic lay people nor to breed contempt or hate of any one person or group. It is strictly to inform and warn of a past historical happening involving the Jesuit order. We will never forget that our forefathers, the first inhabitants of the American land, were compelled to leave their native country, to come to bury themselves in unknown and far distant wildernesses to escape here. Jesuit. Tyranny and cruelty. Jesuitism unveiled. Americans warned about Jesuitism. By Claude Pirat. 1851 AD. If the liberties of the American people are ever destroyed, they will fall by the hands of the Catholic clergy. Lafayette M. Philip Millard, former president of the John Adams Union, wrote to Jefferson in 1816, I am not happy about the rebirth of the Jesuits. Swarms of them will present themselves under more disguises ever taken by even a chief of the Bohemians, as printers, writers, publishers, school teachers, etc. If ever an association of people deserved eternal damnation, on this earth and in hell it is this society of Loyola. Jefferson's reply. Like you, I object to the Jesuits' re-establishment which makes light give way to darkness. 
the secret treaty of Rome. The beginning of the 19th century was a time of change for the papacy of Rome. Pius VII was Pope, from 1800 to 23, and had issued a condemnation of Bible societies as a most abominable invention that destroyed the very foundations of religion. This new era of liberty and republics had diminished much of the papal power, but had nowhere near paralyzed them. They strongly hated these freedoms and continually were they set on destroying them and on regaining their former absolute power as in the time of the Inquisitions. The United States and its president were obstacles that had to be dealt with. On our quest for the truth we must begin at the Treaty of Verona. The death of President Lincoln was the culmination of but one step in the attempt to carry out the secret Treaty of Verona of October 1822. A pact entered into by the high contracting parties. Kings of Prussia, Russia, Austria, and behind the scenes, Pope Pius VII, the King of the Papal States, of the former Congress of Vienna, Austria, which had held its session secret, covering the whole year of 1814 to 15. The suppressed truth about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The secret treaty of Verona referred to its contractors as the Holy Alliance. The treaty was dedicated to the eradication of Europe's representative governments and the re-establishment of absolute monarchies. It also purposed to suppress the media, the press, and to use religion to keep the nations in the state of passive obedience. The document, signed on September 26, th 1822, also expressed there. Thanks to the Pope for what he has already done for them, and solicit his constant cooperation in their views of submitting the nations. In the Congressional Record of April 25, 1916, U.S. Senator Robert L. Owen was questioned by members of Congress as to what the meaning of this secret treaty truly was. The record shows his reply to include the following statements. This holy alliance having put a Bourbon prince upon the throne of France, by force, then used France to suppress the condition of Spain immediately afterwards, and by this very treaty gave her a subsidy of 20 million francs annually to enable her to wage war upon the people of Spain and prevent their exercise of any measure of the right of self-government. The holy alliance immediately did the same thing in Italy by sending Austrian troops to Italy. The Holy Alliance made its powers felt by the wholesale drastic suppression of the press in Europe, by universal censorship, by killing free speech and all ideas of popular rights, and by the complete suppression of popular government. The Holy Alliance having destroyed popular government in Spain, and in Italy, had well laid. Plans also to destroy popular government in the American colonies which had revolted from Spain and Portugal in Central and South America under the successful example of the United States. It was because of this conspiracy against the American republics by the European monarchies that President Monroe stated to Congress that the United States would regard it as an act of hostility if the Holy Alliance, or any European power, attempted to establish control of any American republic or to acquire any territorial rights. Maybe you will remember this decree from school, as this was known as the Monroe Doctrine. As you well know, the Catholic Church laughs in the face of that decree and became a major landholder in the USA. 
As the Vatican brought these political powers together for the Treaty of Verona, they also had other things going on. Simultaneously with the calling of Congress of Vienna in 1814, Pope Pius VI restored the Society of Jesus. Jesuit Order, which had been abolished by Pope Clement IBTH, July 21, 1773, on the grounds that it was immoral, dangerous, and was a menace to the very life of the papacy. The suppressed truth about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It is interesting to notate that this Pope Clement IV, who had banned the Jesuits, was promptly poisoned for his act. The reactivation of the Jesuits was carried further through the next Pope, Leo XII, papacy from 1823 to 29. The Jesuit Oath. The execution of the treaty's plans was placed under the watchful eye of the Jesuits. The equality of all men taught by Christ has always been hated and feared by the Jesuits despite all their protestations of supporting Christianity. The plans laid by these men are very long-range and quite detailed and have but one goal. It will be well for the reader to understand that. The Church of Rome with its 16 centuries of intrigue plans 50 or 100 years ahead. The ultimate goal is to throw the lever of time back by restoring the Pope as the universal arbiter from whom all the rulers of the earth must receive their authority to rule, as during the Dark Ages. The suppressed truth about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The treaty was clearly a political extension of the Jesuits' own motives involving the obliteration of all Protestant governments. So we'll just leave that there. And you have to understand that when we do these kind of deep dives into the historical record, it, it takes us back in a, a different direction because we have to go back to the 1860s during the Lincoln period. We have to look forward and back. And we have to look at what was happening at the time and what kind of geopolitical, historical power players were on the scene and what their motivations were for the previous hundred years going forward and what their intentions were for America. And it seems to me that they had no interest in allowing popular self-government to exist and to continue to promote this idea of liberties for all. Back in, in Europe, it was the king who had sovereign liberty, and then all the vassals and all the, the peasants and all the people that were just living there, the serfs on the land, would just do what they were told. They would never learn to read or write or develop, or they would never grow. They would never leave any property or any assets or rights to their children. And so the American Revolution had overturned all this. So we need to understand that America isn't just another country, it's an idea. It's an idea that stands in contrast with the Dark Ages and with the tyranny of, of the divine right of kings. And, and you can see that if you look at all the, the papers and you, you go into the, your local store and you look at your... Uh, tabloids, you can see that there's all the, the beautiful pictures of the, the Duchess of York and the Duke of Wellington and the princes and princesses and Kate Middleton and what's going on with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle and the Queen and, and, and there's never any criticism of those those people because ultimately those are our, our creditors that you know the Federal Reserve has taken this enormous central bank debt from the Bank of London and you have to understand that ultimately these people who we revolted from are ultimately becoming our landlords again over the course of time. And you need to recognize that their idea about individual liberty and a constitution and protected rights don't really have 
any staying power in their mind. Ultimately, they're preserving their legacy, their throne, and their economic position for the future when this experiment in human liberty and individual uh, political independence should collapse. And, and they've been working very hard to make sure that that happens. So, and that's what we're dealing with today. When you look at the confusion over the election, when you look at the confusion that's being created over COVID-19, where, you know, people are being completely unhinged when they see someone who has a mask or doesn't have a mask. I think that we're just creating a, a separation, a dilemma between people who, who think that the other is insane for not either participating or not participating correctly or not wearing the mask correctly or not, you know, wearing it. You know, everyone has a diverged mind, ultimately. The people are taking a contrary position. The society is being systematically, almost scientifically divided against itself. And ultimately, if we can't really resolve these problems, the crime... It was always there, but ultimately people, the the publicans, the plebs out on the street, just the regular you know, run-of-the-mill street denizens will ultimately take a shot at each other for supposed political reasons that they heard on CNN or Fox. They'll take on the shape of the, and the dimension of the energy and the animosity and the vitriol that's coming through their media and their television and the news networks. So ultimately, what we're really seeing is an exercise of social corrosion. It's breaking us down, and it's turning us against our neighbors. We're all waving signs at each other, and we're fully convinced of each other's right position. But based on what I've seen in the past, that we might all be wrong. We might all be, all be voting for the wrong person. So we need to take a closer look at what is at stake and the, the dynamics that haven't changed, the unchanging canon law of a 15, 16-year-old. And they like to say 2,000-year-old because they, they, they want to have a church system that ties back to Christ. But the truth is, is that the Roman Catholic system didn't exist for 400 years after Christ, maybe 350, 400 years until they established the Pope of Rome uh, as a bishop in Rome and uh, translated the Roman Empire over into this new kind of spiritual dynasty and had a succession of, pa of popes. And we'll talk about that more later in another episode, how we actually got to the succession of, uh, of centuries of, these, of, of the popes uh, that, that made this line of the papacy and how it got its, its, its rise where it started from. But ultimately, that power structure that was begun by Julius Caesar stood in place and kind of took on the veneer and the vernacular of a Christian bishopric or a Christian church. And ultimately, it rose among all the Christian churches of Asia and the Greece and Pergamos and different areas uh, in Judea, just different areas around the ancient world where there's different churches in Damascus and different areas. And ultimately, the Roman bishopric, the, the Roman church, became the head of all those of all those churches and tried to have its supremacy over all their bishops. So that's why you see people come in and they have to kneel down and kiss the Pope's ring because he has supremacy over all other pastors and preachers and all other bishops. That's, that's his position. And ultimately, he has, in his mind, supremacy over all the kings and all the presidents and all the rulers of the world. And so that's in order to be a Catholic, in order to be in good standing with the international bankers and the globalists and the elites and the, the high knights of the, the, the Order of St. John's or the, the Templar Knights, as they were called in the past, or, you know, 
the, 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 the Scottish Rite Knights or the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan or any of these systems of papal knights, the Knights of the Golden Circle. We've been through this before. We discussed how they had fraternities of papal knights who, who operated like a military battalion. And their order and their, their position is to defend the power and the, the, the omnipotent plenary sovereignty, plenary sovereignty and plenary powers of the papacy. So uh, let's go ahead and take a listen to, I think I have an inter interview here that we can take a listen to. This is going to be another podcast that was done by Federal Jack. And it looks like Steve Stars and Popeye are doing this one. And it's interesting to how hard I have to work now to go and to try to dig up some of this information for you guys because it's almost it's almost impossible to find. There was a day um, 10 years ago when this stuff was available on the internet and now it's really just completely censored and you have to really dig um, pretty far in there to try to find some of these kind of divergent discussions. And these are ideas that are going to be kind of banned as, as, you know, conspiracy ideas that are just unacceptable in the, the normal, you know, the normal uh, academic world or whatever, and you won't hear these kind of points of history put together in this way, and you just won't, you won't be able to find it. So that's why we're really doing this. We're really trying to make sure that we bring this information out and proliferate some of the information that's being lost. So let's go ahead and take a listen. I wanted to put together, uh, at least record the, uh, the audio and then put together this video for everybody because there's a lot of very, very important, good information coming out. So, uh, Steve, I'll, I'll shut up now and uh, go right ahead and tell the listeners what uh, you were telling me. And uh, I would say pretty much start back around like the beginning where you were telling me about uh, John Surratt and everything else. Yeah, you know, we've uh, in the past well, we've done some, uh, some shows that have talked about historical events, and a lot of people think, well, that's kind of interesting history. But we always try to relate to what's happening right now and how we got into this terrible situation as history progressed. And one of the darkest moments in American history, which really was a foreshadowing of the Kennedy assassination, was what happened with Abraham Lincoln at the end of, of the Civil War and the assassination of Lincoln. Um, you have to understand how these events came into came to play. Uh, we can talk a little bit about how the war took place and, and the banking powers that wanted to rip this country apart. Uh, I believe it was Bismarck who had said many years after that the, the, the banking cartels of, of Europe wanted to tear the United States apart because they foresaw it becoming a major superpower and they didn't want the competition. So there were the bankers were, were actually backing both sides of the war, of course. But in, primarily in the South, they wanted to expand slavery. Yes, slavery was a dead institution agriculturally in the South, but they were looking at mining and mining was very big. Remember, uh, uh, England had suffered under their gold standard and the economy had gone very badly. But when gold was found in 1849 in California, all of a sudden it began to revive the capability of backing currencies by gold. And so there was a big gold rush. And there was, there was mining all over the New World, especially in Canada and the United States. And here's, here was the place where you wanted slaves because they could work around the clock 24 hours. I mean, in an agricultural situation, they could plant and harvest and the rest of the time you have to take care of them. So slavery was dying in the South. Plus the railroads who were moving to the West were getting huge easements of property on both sides of the track. Sometimes you can get up, I guess, almost even up to 20 miles uh, of uh, easement and property. So this, this meant that they had land, they had places to raise cattle, they, they were building railroads, they were going to have the slaves build the railroads and then go to work on the land uh, that 
they had built the railroads to reach. So mining and all that wanted, they wanted to expand this kind of an empire feudalistic system into the territories, places as, as high as, as, as uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And uh, of course, from the very beginning of the United States, even Washington was opposed to allowing slavery in the new territories. And the Mason-Dixon line was about to be erased with controversy like the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, the, uh, you know, the Slave Fugitive Act of 1850, Dred Scott, some of these things. So there's this tremendous amount of tension about where the United States was going to go, and that's what led to the war. But getting into the, the whole story about Abraham Lincoln, you know, you have to realize that at one point in his life, he had defended a priest by the name of Shinnequay, Father Shinnequay, who had come to him and said, I need an attorney because uh, I've run into all this framing uh, trouble that, that has come from my bishops and, and, the, and the church. Essentially, they're trying to run me out. I'm trying to get some things done, and, and we're having problems in there framing me and uh, trying to take away all my ministry and my, my churches they're taking away my flocks and they're you know they're, they're making me out to be a really bad guy even you know saying that he had the relationships with a little girl that was all proven to be untrue and everything like that so he Lincoln took his case and won the case and what had happened was after this uh, Chinaquay said the Jesuits will never forgive or forget they're going to get you so you got to remember that all over the, the new world the Jesuits had, had a very bad reputation they were banned by Pope Clement the 14th in uh, 1763, I believe it was, and uh, or was it 1773? But right, right about that time, they were run out of nations in Europe. Uh, Spain, Italy, uh, various other places had decided that they had enough of the Jesuits after 500 years of intrigue, assassinations, uh, you know, political, uh, you know, mischief, all kinds of things. It has happened over and over and over. And so this gave a little bit of a reprieve in the United States for a period of time. If you read the quotes of people like John Adams, you'll realize that a lot of people, John Adams, Jefferson, uh, Lafayette, the, the, the uh, General Lafayette, who assisted Washington during the war, all of these people had some very bad things to say about this particular organization. But they began to emerge again because I believe they actually poisoned uh, Clement XIV. And when they did, and he knew it too, of course, he knew they were coming back and they were going to get back into control, hiding behind the Pope. The Jesuits operated a little bit uh, behind the Vatican, much like the CIA operates behind the President of the United States. He can't control them. They have their own agenda. He has to rely on them for their connections, but at the same time, uh, he can't really trust them either, as, as is the case of John F. Kennedy, another person who I believe was killed by the same people, the CIA, the Jesuits. Right now, the Jesuits control the entire spy network of the United States. Everybody from James Clapper, Leon Panetta, David Petraeus, George Tennant, and you know, you, you look at other people like Nancy Pelosi, John Boehner, uh, Biden is a Jesuit trained, Kerry was Jesuit trained. All these people who run our government right now are Jesuits. Now, getting back to the story about Lincoln, I hope I'm not being too long-winded. But let's get back no, to that. No, not by any means, Steve. Actually, you are a fountain of knowledge, so feel free to continue and just talk and talk and talk. Go right ahead. Well, I'll just keep going on the whole thing because uh, we were talking about what happened with Abraham Lincoln, what happened with the assassination. Because uh, we were talking about what happened with Abraham Lincoln, what happened with the assassination. Now, I worked with uh, some people who were interested in trying to exhume the body of John Wilkes Booth back in the early 90s. And you may have seen some of these segments that ran on Unsolved Mysteries on NBC. Uh, we wanted to exhume the body of Booth based on some theories that we had that Booth actually escaped from Garrett's barn and got away and possibly blackmailed the government. Uh, the, as the story goes, that 
Booth actually claims that uh, Andrew Johnson helped him and assisted him in murdering Abraham Lincoln. Now, there's some credibility to this because John Wilkes Booth's calling card was found in Andrew Johnson's mailbox the day of the assassination. And I've had the handwriting checked. It is Booth's handwriting. So, I mean, we could go on and on, but I think what we've done is given people a pretty good introduction. We could talk a little bit about the details of John Wilkes Booth's uh, supposed apprehension at Garrett's barn uh, and why yeah, I get into that. You were telling me that it might not even have, even have been him. Yeah, it's very likely that it wasn't. I mean, there were there were there's information that came out that was released in a book by Lewis Weichmann, who was in the movie The, the Conspirator. He only had a couple lines. Uh, John Surratt hated him because it turns out this fellow was also going to a divinity school, but sort of broke ranks with the whole thing, became a government testimony agent, or he was a state witness in the trial, and was identifying Booth as being involved with the Surratt family and, and the, the boarding house and what was going on with this little group of conspirators there so it turns out this guy worked at the war department you know it's it's odd the whole the coincidences of all this but his book was held back it wasn't even published for 75 was it 75 years or a long time after that i think he wrote it in, in 1902 and it was released it was finally published in 1973 his whole account of the assassination there is information in this book popeye that came out I mean, this was verified by his book that was already going around the conspiracy theory groups. In other words, how did, how did Booth get out of Washington? There was a, a, a password that he was given, and according to the conspiracy theory people, he met with, with uh, Andrew Johnson on Friday, the day of the assassination, and Johnson was the one who prompted him to, to actually assassinate the president that night. And Booth said, I can't get out of the city. You know, you've got uh, France guards everywhere. How am I going to get across the bridge, across the Anacostia Bridge? I just came across this morning. They detained me for three hours. I, there's no way I'm going to do this. I can't escape. Johnson gave him a password. The password was TB, countersign TB Road. Now, this was already in the information that was being published and printed uh, by people who were investigating this from accounts of what happened that night Booth came across the bridge. And what was so interesting about this was a lot of this information was now being confirmed. Booth got through a Union patrol uh, underneath a false bottom. You know the old magician's trick? They, they took a wagon and, and created a false bottom underneath it. And Booth got underneath this false bottom and they threw a bunch of chickens and you know tools and some bags of hay or whatever on top and had an old black man ride this wagon through the Union Patrol and they kind of looked in the back and they said, you ain't seen a booth, have you? He said, no, sir. You know, and off they went, you know, and booth was inside this wagon. Nobody knew this and this was confirmed as well, that he had actually gotten through a Union Patrol under the false bottom. All these different things. Now, this is where he supposedly left his diary and his pen and his compass and all his material. He was wearing a Confederate uniform. Uh, he went to the Garrett's house. Uh, I believe it was now we're almost two weeks. It was it the 26th, roughly around the 26th of April at this time. He'd been on the run. Of course, he had the bad leg. He shaved his mustache. But he was staying at the Garrett's farm. And back in those days, you know, if you're a Southerner, you had to offer some kind of Southern hospitality. But the Garrett's were somewhat suspicious of both David Harold and Booth because they didn't want to get into trouble. You know, they were in Virginia. Was this after he, he had stopped by Mud's house? Yeah, he stopped by Mudd's, uh, you know, almost immediately after the assassination during that night and had his leg set.
So that can go on for an hour where they can go into the detail of the entire escape plan, all the places that he went. They're actually going to show a map, and they'll show the barn where he was hiding, and they'll show the entire thing. They ultimately caught him. The other one, he got away. He made it into Canada, and then ultimately he made it to England and into Rome, and we were hearing that entire discussion earlier on. So Booth gets caught. John Surratt goes, and he ends up in the Pope's suave army, which is the Papal Guard, those guys who wear those funny hats, and march around. It kind of reminds me of, like, the Wizard of Oz with the Wicked Witch of the West when you have those guys come through, and they're like, it's like, you know, it's it's the kind of ancient medieval uh, system that's been in place forever, right? So, ultimately, the... uh, John Surratt is found out. Our agents, I think it's by divine providence, ultimately find him, track him all the way, uh, almost like a surveillance and intelligence operation, and, you know, an espionage route. They, they track him through Europe, and they ultimately, the American agents ultimately arrest him and bring him back to stand trial. And from what I understand, he actually gets a hung trial and a mistrial, and ultimately he drags out for a long time, and he actually survives. And, and I don't, I don't know, is he hung? I don't think he is. I think John Surratt, by the power of the um, the legacy of John Carroll, which is left, I mean, ultimately Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, was set on John Carroll's farm, right? So John Carroll was the the important, was he, was he a Jesuit? He was definitely a... a, a a priest, definitely a Catholic, and ultimately Philadelphia, the capital of the United States, was moved from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., the quasi-area between Maryland and Pennsylvania and and Virginia, and it's set there on the on John Carroll's old acreage. So that's how we are going to get the, the power of the... Um, there was a book called it's called uh, Washington in the Lap of Rome, and it's a book by Justin D. Fulton, and it goes and describes how the this new capital, this new district of Columbia, which really isn't a state, it's just a quasi-territory, it reminds me of the the city of London, which is in London City. It's the, uh, the, the banker's quarter mile, and it's ultimately like the Vatican city-state. It's just kind of like a district. It's a, a quasi-sovereign zone that was established and ultimately became the center of the this American empire. Ultimately, we used to have states' rights, and it was the states as uh, nation states who had the, the supremacy of law and power. And ultimately, after Lincoln, he created the, the war powers and created the first... Well, you know, when the president uses executive orders, that all began with Lincoln, because he, he, the, the quorum of the of the, uh, the Senate and the House of Representatives was broken when the uh, the Southern Senators and the Southern, Southern Representatives left. And so the, the actual quorum of our legislative body was broken, and Lincoln had to use executive powers and use presidential authority that wasn't given to him under Constitution because it was an emergency. These were emergency war powers that he took up. And ultimately, he never got to repair it. He never got to repair that breach within the the checks and balances of our governing system and every subsequent president after Lincoln has used executive orders and it's become an out of control kind of dictatorship if you ask me in my opinion 
But we really need to discuss more here as we're going forward the designs on America and its future and the people of America. And we have to ask ourselves, like, how are we going to ultimately be able to survive if we've turned against the principles of our founding documents? We no longer have really habeas corpus or protected speech. We don't really, really have protected gun rights anymore. You have to watch where you go if you're going to carry a gun. You, know, you, know, you no longer have the ability to be protected on any, any level um, the way that the Bill of the Bill of uh, <clears throat> the Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution and our primary doctors do- documents were designed to protect individual liberties. So as that begins to go away, and we face this kind of technotronic tyranny, this new cyber world of Twitter and Facebook and Google that is going to try to control speech, control what information is allowed to be seen by the public and ultimately censor anyone who disagrees with their new paradigm. We'll see that we live in, we're looking at a dystopian future that no one had in mind. So we need to get back to our founding documents. We need to take a look at what the powers of the globalists, the international elite, the old orders of tyranny of monarchialism that tend to want to bring us back under their control, under their debt banking system and their religious mode of kind of superstition. Um, the other day I was reading an article, like, like a legitimate article on a, on a news platform that was talking about the rise in exorcisms. And so you have these priests of the Vatican that are going around the countryside performing exorcists because people are becoming demonized and they're becoming out of control and ultimately they're there to to perform these roman rites and save people from this outbreak of of uh i guess the exorcist remember the old movie so that's the kind of prevailing thinking while we're not allowed to look at hunter biden's laptop you're allowed to think hard about what presents you're going to get for your family on the christmas list and make sure that your kids have candy at school for valentine's day and make sure that you get an exorcism right away and that's the predominant prevailing thinking that's going to start to kind of matriculate down through our news systems and through Facebook. And you're not allowed to question this. You're not allowed to protest. You're not allowed to resist. Um, you're not allowed to, those are now like, uh, communist buzzwords. You know, if you're trying to protest and resist, you must be with BLM. If you're a protester, really the word protest, the word Protestant really comes from the old, the old language, which was, pro-testament. In other words, the original Protestants were rejecting the system of Rome, which was ritualized and required a priest to absolve you and, and required paying for masses and paying for services by the Catholic Church in order to receive ministry. And now they had turned to their printing press and to their King James Version Bible, 1611, and their authorized King James Version Bibles, and they read that the grace was through faith. Ultimately, we receive our salvation from the Lord through faith and not through the ordination or the, the sacraments or the performances that you do. In other words, you can't say seven Hail Marys to get absolution from your priest. You have to seek the Lord, repent, turn away from those behaviors, and change your life and receive that kind of absolution from your, uh, of your sin from the Lord. And that's where you go to, you pray. That's what the Lord taught people to pray in the Testament, the pro-Testament. That's what the Protestants were fighting for. They weren't protesting anything on the street, which is a new kind of way to use the word. They were 
positively affirming that they believed in the Bible alone. So, sola scriptura, protestament, protest. That's what Protestants were all about. And ultimately, our resistance against the papacy because of our protestament, Protestant position made us enemies of the state. And that's what we've long been. So, ultimately, my acquaintance, Eric John Phelps, is an extremely controversial fellow. I've heard people out there saying they call him a racist. They call him, they say that his positions about geocentricity are very weird. They say that he is a Jesuit. They say all kinds of things about him. I spoke with him plenty of times. He's highly intelligent. You really have to go to the essence of Jesuitism to understand that if Jesuits are going to secretly teach on Protestant pulpits and pretend to be Protestants, then you really can't question the motives of a man in this heart. You really can't see what he does privately and watch everything and, you know, see how he prays and see what his real heart is. So, you know, we have to leave that discussion between him and the Lord, what he is, if he's a Jesuit or if he isn't a Jesuit or who he is. But the history that he's bringing out and some of the facts and the learning that he's bringing out can't really be resisted. We have to ultimately be willing to see what he's bringing to the table and the information, and the ideas speak for themselves. So, ultimately, we have to get back to the question of the temporal power of the Pope. And Catholics go in and receive uh, Mass, and they receive communion, and and they have their their children baptized, or, uh, you know, in the baptismal waters there. Ultimately, in the Protestant faith, at the age when you're accountable for your sins, so you're 13 or older, you're going to go and you're going to get baptized by your own free will, by choice. You're not going to rely on the, uh, the ancient practice of somebody sprinkling water on your head when you're a baby that you don't even remember. It's not a valid way to enter the Christian faith. You have to choose it. Like Jesus Christ, you have to go down into the water and you have to be with a, a pastor that you, you, that you uh, ultimately trust. And you're going to commit your life to the Lord through this act of baptism. And that's something you do when you're an adult not a baby. So we have to have to take issue with that also. We want you to stand properly before the Lord and not trust these kind of venile, archaic, and obnoxious practices that are being taught by this false church, despite all of its grandeur and the gold that it got through World War One and Two. We have to look at the fact that the Council of Verona and the Council of Vienna leading up from 1822 uh, up into the uh, the 19, 1900s and to 1910 are going to really lead up. So we're talking about 1822 and 1890 are going to lead up right to World War One, and then ultimately World War Two. And, and in subsequent broadcasts, we're going we're to discuss the, the role of the papacy and the Catholic Church and their orders of knights. Within, within those two wars. So here, let's listen to this, this little bit here from Phelps. We need to find out about the temporal power of the Pope and learn the history of that. Okay, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go to... I'm going to mention to you the doctrine of the temporal power. I cover it extensively in my book, Vatican Assassins. But the doctrine of the temporal power, that means the political power of the Pope was given to him by Pepin the Great, who was the father of Charlemagne. The beginning
beginner of really the first Holy Roman Empire in 800 when he was crowned King of the Franks by the Pope. So Pepin the Great gives the Pope, I believe is Stephen III, universal temporal power in 756. This means that the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, has the power ultimately to rule the governments of all nations. I will repeat, the temporal power of the Pope is the doctrine that he has the right given to him by Christ, quote-unquote, with the power of the keys, believing that Peter was the first Pope and therefore that his successors have these same powers, the powers of the keys, of binding and loosing, temporal and spiritual power, this temporal power is symbolized by a silver key on the Vatican flag. This is the same silver key that's on display at NSA headquarters in Roman Catholic Fort Meade, Maryland. General Meade of the Yankee Union Communist Army, being a Roman Catholic, that won the Battle of Gettysburg, in 1863, after General Robert E. Lee, the apostate Episcopalian, deliberately threw the battle and sacrificed Pickett's division. So, NSA is headquartered at Fort Meade, Maryland, and when you enter its headquarters, you will see an eagle clutching a silver key. The silver key is the silver key of the Vatican flag, symbolizing the Pope's temporal power. Therefore, the purpose of the NSA, as created by the National Security Act in 1947, which also created the Central Intelligence Agency and the, what, uh, the Department of Defense, Joint Chiefs of Staff, all that was done in 1947. But the purpose of these intelligence communities is to restore the temporal power of the Pope around the world. And so the United States, with its military government having been put in place by the evil and wicked, demon-possessed Scottish Rite Freemason of the 32nd degree, Franklin and Daniel Roosevelt, when he put that military government in place with Proclamation 2040, based on the Trading with the Enemy Act, he imposed an emergency war powers military government over all the people deemed U.S. citizens and now enemy belligerents living in states deemed occupied territories. What for? So that the Pope could control the commander-in-chief. The commander-in-chief controlling the states and the governors, the governors then controlling the people. And that's exactly what we're having today. He is subject to the commander-in-chief of Washington, or commander-in-chief of Washington is subject to the Pope. So, this is the doctrine of the temporal power, and we in America today are feeling the effects of the temporal power of the Pope as exercised through President Donald Trump, because no matter what political party the president is in, he better do what the Pope tells him to do, or he will be kennedy The only president of the 20th century who dared to truly oppose the Pope was a Roman Catholic, 4th degree Knight of Columbus, named John F. Kennedy.
So, this is the doctrine of the temporal power, and we are living under it today. The command to wear masks when there is no pandemic is an effect of the Pope's temporal power. The command to stay indoors and not go outside is a result of the enforcement of the Pope's temporal power through the commander-in-chief, through the governor of your state. This is the doctrine of the temporal power. The further commands, because they have other things planned for us here. Further commands is, if you don't wear a mask, you can be fined. And if you don't pay the fine, you're going to suspend your driver's license. Then what are you going to do? And you can't work for good, for sure. And furthermore, if you don't wear a mask, and all the deluded people out there who listen to the news media, be it right or left, be it MSNBC, with that lying Rachel Maddow, or that Fox News, with that lying Laura Ingram, they're both Roman Catholics. <laughs> they're both on one extreme or the other. One's a racial Jew, another's a racial Gentile. But they're all working for the Pope, and they're both millionaires. Uh, I guess yeah, because the Vatican thing is so secret, these figures aren't published anywhere, or, or never. Oh no, they're not published. Uh, it's not accessible to anybody. No, because you see, it's, they're considered private records of a private corporation. But pri and private corporations can be uh, like under the SEC and that. That's true, but remember, it's under a sovereign state, the sovereign state of Vatican City, so it's it's exempt or immune from any prosecution. And remember also that the Pope is a sovereign and king of the law. He's also regarded as the king of king of uh, Rome, so he cannot be sued. Well, I thought the heads of state can be though. Under, uh, I mean, they've they've attempted on a couple of occasions with uh, they tried to extradite uh, Ariel Sharon. Uh, yeah, but you see, he's only a prime minister. Also, well, presidents, presidents and prime ministers can be sued, but not sovereigns like the Queen of England or the Pope. I see what you're They cannot be sued. Okay. Brother Eric, I need to ask you about um, the Jesuit issue of vengeance. Um, quite, I, I've come up quite often in your book, Vatican Assassins, that um, the, the, the Jesuits are quite vengeful people. Like, for example, that have a problem with someone's grandparents and, the, and then they go kill off the grandchildren somewhere down the line because they were just very vengeful people. Um, in relation to what's going on in South Africa with the killing off of the white Protestant Boers, is, is that related? Absolutely. Could you explain that in detail to me? Because um, I've had somebody on my show yesterday talking about the subject. Okay. Uh, remember the Boers were essentially Dutch, French, and German. It was a kind of a mixture. Primarily Dutch, but French, French and German were involved. And they escaped Europe in the early 1600s to, to found Cape Town. And then, uh, for the purpose of escaping the Holy Office of the Inquisition, that was burning heretics and auto de fe's in every major city in Europe. So they got out, and they, because they were the great shippers and mariners, they went down to the farthest place away that they knew of to get away from papal Europe, destroying the Reformation at the time, and moved into South Africa. Well, they then moved north, and they purchased the land that they ultimately dwelt on from the Zulus. 
They never stole it from the Zulus. In fact, the Zulus shed first blood, which led to the Battle of Red River, where the Boers just uh, annihilated 15,000 Zulus, but they never started it. So the Boers were protected by the Lord, and he gave them a place to live, because all they wanted to do was have freedom of worship. And the Jesuits regarded them as escapees from Europe. So when the Jesuits took over the, the British crown with the later the King George III, um, they then used the crown to further their ends, and one of those ends was to go after the, the Protestants, Protestant white nations of the world. That's what they did when they made war on us here in America, um, and that's what they later did against the Boers in the, in the 19th century, in the 1800s, when they started their Boer War, their two Boer Wars, for the purpose of annihilating them. When they did not succeed in doing that, then they had to back off for a while, but then they continued to, to uh, press the matter. Uh, the, the Boers of South Africans got their own republic under Henrik Verward for a while, but Henrik Verward, who, who he was knifed through the heart in the parliament of South Africa, brutally murdered, and they didn't clean up the blood from all the blood all over the rug for four years as a warning to anybody that would dare want to have their own white Protestant nation of South Africa. So after the British killed him, using one of their assassins, after the Jesuits used the British crown to do it, then ultimately they began their systematic destruction of South Africa with the denunciation of apartheid. And uh, then when they destroyed apartheid using Bill Clinton, that Jesuit-trained individual, then they, by way of the Jesuits using their African National Congress, Luis Malima, Nelson Mandela, Mbiki. Mbiki and Mandela were both nice and old, by the way. And oh, uh, Brother Eric, this one to say, it's Julius Malema is this African National Congress uh, youth leader who um, was actually expelled after talking, pointing the finger at Nikki Oppenheimer, which is very, very naughty of someone in the African National Congress to do, because as you know, Nikki Oppenheimer owns half of South Africa, and of course is a knight of Malta. But Julius Malema has been going around saying, um, kill the farmer, kill the boer. Is this directly from Jesuit rhetoric? Oh yes, that's just with rhetoric, because the Boers are all Protestants. There aren't any Catholic Boers. They're all historically Protestants. And, and, and they are the food producers of the country. So we're going to do two things. We're going to kill the Protestants, pursuant to the Council of Trent. And we're going to kill the food producers, so after we do that, we can bring all the blacks which into starvation. And that's exactly what they've done in Rhodesia, a.k.a. Zimbabwe. What they've done in Zimbabwe, they're going to do in South Africa. Eric, just a thing I'm, I'm trying to remember from my theological training, the Council of Trent, was that where the Jesuits uh, were given the official okay, or was that something else? No, the Jesuits were, were brought into the papacy in 1540 with uh, a papal bull of Paul III, who was a Farnese, uh, one of the royal families. But uh, the Council of Trent was the formal denunciation of the doctrines of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, and so on. And that council lasted for 18 years. It lasted from 1545 to 1563, on and off. And it ends up with a cursed, a cursed be all heretics. So um, the Council of Trent uh, condemns everything that 
was taught and preached during the Reformation, and then the Jesuit Fourth Vow vows to go into all the historic white Protestant nations, destroy them all, kill the leaders if necessary. They can't. They can't kill them openly. They kill them secretly for the purpose of restoring them all back to the Pope's The problem is, all the historic white Protestant nations are now under temple power. Canada, ever since Trudeau, has been the temple power of the Pope. The U.S., ever since ever since Theodore Roosevelt, at the latest, has been the Pope's temple power. Can you tell us Sorry, talk a bit about Trudeau and that connection. I know he's... Oh, oh yeah, okay. Trudeau was completely in control of the Jesuits. He was... He, I believe he was also an Malta. I have... His, his nephew was a bit of my program. The nephew of the Jesuit that advised Trudeau, he's been on my program. Uh, his name escapes me right now. But, uh, but I can get him for it if you want. He's Canadian. Canada. By making them all subject to Quebec and taxing the English Protestants for the benefit of the Quebec and Catholics. That's been their whole design for years. That's why they're shoving French down the throats of all the English speakers, but uh, they won't have English. They don't want to have English in Quebec. And when I was in Quebec about two years ago visiting a, a, a retired or actually defrocked bishop named Gerard Buffard, uh, he took me to, to a restaurant and I was just being curious to some of the Quebecans there. They wouldn't even talk to me. He said, Eric, don't waste your time. You're English. They will not speak to you. So the Jesuits have imbibed a great hatred among the Quebec French people for the English Protestants. And, uh, and I've experienced that firsthand. So the temporal power of the Pope over finance through the Federal Reserve that the Pope controls. One of the past presidents of the Federal Reserve was a man named Peter G. Peterson. He was a presider of the Council on Foreign Relations out of New York City. The Council on Foreign Relations out of New York City is overseen by the Archbishop of New York City, today Timothy Cardinal Dolan used to be Edward Cardinal Egan at the time of 9-11. Edward Cardinal Egan oversaw the entire 9-11 bring it down to the World Trade Center. That's right. He had his Ruli Giuliani, not a Malta there in New York City to, uh, to make sure it was the Muslims who did it, the Saudis, whoever, 21 Muslims. Ridiculous. Or lies of the Archbishop of New York to blame Islam so they can incite a crusade against the Muslims. Got to have a crusade against the Muslims now. What's the crusade against the Muslims? It's the temporal power of the Pope. There were nine crusades led by the, pape, the Popish uh, kings. And then the tenth crusade was the crusade of Napoleon. The eleventh crusade was the crusade of the British. And the 12th crusade is a crusade of the Americans. It's the 12th crusade against Islam. Overseen and directed by the Pope of Rome. And Islam had nothing to do with 9-11. Nothing. So, what is this? It's the doctrine of the temporal power. So they have all power in finance, doctrine of the temporal power. They have all finance and politics, the doctrine of the temporal power. Council on Foreign Relations, every president chooses his, his staff from generally all members of the Council on Foreign Relations out of New York and Chicago. Donald Trump's picked a bu bunch of them, just like every president before him. Donald Trump picked five 
by members of Goldman Sachs to be in his administration. Who's Goldman Sachs run by? The Knights of Malta. It has a Jewish name, but the Knights of Malta run it. Men like Jeffrey T. Biasi. Powerful Knight of Malta. Another papal knight. What are we doing here? We're dealing with the docks of the Temple Power. So therefore, in, in the Pope seeking to reduce the last bastion of Protestant liberty and Baptist liberty in the world, all, all the nations have now been reduced to the temporal power with the armies and the financial power of the Pope's Holy Roman 14th Amendment Socialist Communist uh, socialist fascist American empire for the, for the last 87 years and now that they've used Americans to conquer all the nations for the Pope and submit them to the temporal power like China in 1949, like Russia 19, 1918 thereabouts and building up all throughout the 20s and 30s like Germany subject to the Pope's temporal power still under a conquer down with the Pope that Hitler signed with them through Franz von Papen Temporal power of the Pope through, through all throughout South America, Central America, Mexico, they're all their temporal power. Because the temporal power of the Pope always has a dictator in the, under the guise of a president that has all power and he runs the military and he can do anything he wants to, including round up anybody he wants to. The, one of the great temporal power dictators of the 20th century was Fidel Castro. He was trained by Jesuits for seven years. I know I, I like history though, and, uh, and I thought this was like such a compelling story. And it hasn't been like, like and, and especially after talking with my with my relatives and that in the states, they're going, oh, all they're taught is that you know, booth, booth, booth. And I go, well, what? If, there were other people that were hung and sent to jail. What about all them? You know, um, so, uh, all you get is like blank stares in response. Well, tell us about some of those people, Chad. Tell us about the conspiracy that was plotted against the assassination of Lincoln. Tell us who was involved, and and then we'll talk about Tom General Harris. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, dear. Uh, so where do you want to go? Yeah, you have to go all the way back to 
Could you tell us about uh, the assassination and the, the military tribunal there, which General Harris was a part of? Um, well, like, how do you mean this? Like, they got together, they, they decided what they were going to do. Uh, you know, they each had their own roles. Uh, uh, John Surratt, um, he was like one of the main ringleaders, by the way, and his name is rarely ever mentioned. In history, and he was—he was like, like he's just a kid, but I mean, like you know, 19 years old, and that. But yes, I mean, he's kind of the guy that's uh, um, bringing all this together, and and, and eventually was uh, went to the Vatican, became a member of the Papal Garden, and you've got the Pope defending, uh, protecting Surratt, and Surratt protecting the Pope. It's quite a symbiotic relationship there after the assassination. Um, back again with Biblical Truth in History and Prophecy with our guest today, Charles Wilcox, reviewing his work, Transformation of the Republic Concerning Roles and Design and Purpose Behind the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln, a secret that's been kept from us, the American people, through academia, through our public schools, because there can be nothing detrimental ever said about the papacy. Okay, Chuck, uh, I'd like you now to go into what happened to Surratt after the assassination. I know he was calling time outside Ford's Theater, but can you trace his steps and where he went and ultimately what happened to him, please? Yeah, sure. Um, before I do that, though, may I give my uh, website? Oh, yes, please. Okay, it's ctwilcox.com. That's W-I-L-C-O-X. And uh, on, I've got a, a bunch of uh, very interesting stuff on there. Um, a couple of books that Samuel Morris had written, and um, just a lot of things that'll bring things into a modern-day perspective as well. Uh, but uh, you can also uh, there's a link there for Lulu, and you can uh, order the book through there if you set up an account from with Lulu, uh, or you can just uh, send payment to uh, a PO box that I have at the bottom of the homepage. That's ctwilcox.com. Um, okay, John Surratt. Do you have a phone number, Charles, if people might want to call you? or uh, Not not presently, no. Okay. I'm sorry, I don't. But they can email me, uh, cwilcox at telus.net. That's T-E-L-U-S dot net. Okay, very good. Okay. Okay, please um, Yeah, okay, John Surratt, after the assassination... Uh, decided to hightail it to uh, a little town outside of Montreal called Trois-Rivières, and he was he was harbored there. Actually, there was a couple of priests there. Um, uh, Lapierre and uh, Bourget that were waiting for him. They had already gotten advance notice that he was on his way. Um, and this is at a time right now that the United States has like one of the greatest manhunts in U.S. history is on for this guy. Um, you know, and and uh, so what does he do? He goes and and uh, to Montreal, and he and he's scrolled away for the better part of a half a year by these two priests. Uh, for and then from there, he's he's kind of in disguise. He's put on a sh on a ship to Liverpool, and he's sent to Liverpool uh, to um, uh, 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 kind of a 
uh, Roman Catholic clearinghouse, I guess. It's a place where the um, all the priests of Europe and that, when they were coming through over to this side of the ocean, would come through this one place in Liverpool and vice versa. Right, so it was uh, a way station, as it were. So Surratt kind of sat there for a while, got money sent to him to finance his way to Italy. When he gets to Italy, he becomes a member of the Papal Zoology, like the Papal Guards, under the name of John Watson. And um, so, so uh, here he is now, protecting the Pope, basically, and the Pope is protecting him. The Pope knowing full well that... Uh, you know, the United States is just livid and, and wanting to get this guy back, right? Uh, but there's no extradition treaty. <laughs> right, so... Um, and that, that's typical of a popish assassination. The assassins are taken out of the country and sent to a place where there's no extradition. We see the very same thing happening with the Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. Please continue. Sure. Uh, so now uh, it, it's getting to the point where the, where the church is thinking, well... If we don't do something to kind of placate the United States government, then we're going to lose a lot of uh, like church property and that, and we can't have that. So what we're going to do is, is uh, say, okay, we're going to offer him up to you, right? But under one condition, that he does not face capital punishment. Um, and so the United States well said, fine, okay, we'll accept that, right? So what happens next is they stage an escape for the guy. Um, and and I, all of the uh, diplomatic correspondence that I was able to get uh, from the period over there in the, in the U.S. archives and that, this is just this great big soap opera of how John Surratt, escapes and, the, and, and uh, Rome says, well, he escaped too bad, so sad, there's nothing we can do about it now, right? Uh, and he was given advance warning and he was, he was helped basically to escape. So the, the United States, uh, through one of their contacts... In, the, in order to make a long story short, uh, Surah was on his way, trying to make his way to Alexandria, Egypt, when they ultimately arrested him and brought him back to the United States. But let's really just focus in on here what we're learning here tonight. We're learning all about the subterfuge and the espionage tactics and the geopolitical power structure that exerts itself on all the nations of the world through diplomacy, which should really author diplomacy, was probably practicing diplomacy before the United States was even born in 1776, um, the Vatican, and uh, really it's Gregorian University and, and all of its different, uh, ultimately here in the United States we have now we have Fordham University and we have Georgetown University, but their scholars and their scholastic abilities um, uh, through the Jesuit colleges and universities throughout the world and throughout the United States have been implementing the policies that are really reflective, that have shaped and really made their ultimate imprint on the United States and affected us, brought us into wars, directed the, the uh, policies of our highest elected officials, ultimately directed the destiny of our country for the purpose of making sure that, that our sovereign nation served the interests and the wars and the intentions of the papacy through the doctrine of the temporal power. And so this is something that we need to understand as Americans that our 
freedoms and our constitutional liberties are to these people really just a joke. They're just a piece of paper. They have no meaning. They have their 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 orders in the, in the universities. They have their skull and bones. They have their secret clubs. They have their globalist powers. I mean, we're all just out here, people who are earning such and such dollars an hour and who are really just conspiracy theorists. We're really just peasants and we're really just sinking below the, the poverty line as the interest rates of the Federal Reserve debt seem to clock out of control as we borrow trillions of dollars and we look to our politicians to save us. We're really losing track of the real game here, which is that this country was founded on the Protestant Reformation. It was founded on biblical principles by men who had defied the and escaped the inquisitional authorities and the papal power structure there in Europe. And we threw it off and said we were going to be independent. We proclaimed independence. We had a declaration of our political and personal individual independence from the system of tyranny that claimed that it owned us, that it enslaved us, that it impelled us to accept its ecclesiastical authority and the dominion of its princes and their arbitrary laws and powers, and that we had to submit to it. And we had come over here as colonists, and the first chance we got, we cut those ties, those, those bonds of political uh, subordination, and we created a country that was independent on its own, that protected individual soul liberties, protected Bible believers, that protected Protestants. We, in this country, we have, um, in Pennsylvania, we have Amish farmers who still like to, to ride horse and, and buggy and who make their own clothes and build their own barns. And we, ha we have this ethic distilled in this country that we can trust in God ourselves, that we don't need a, a Roman church or a Roman ritual or a Roman sacrament or a Roman rite or anything Romish at all, but that we can have our own Christian biblical doctrines and trust in the Lord, you know, obey the Ten Commandments and believe in, in the Lord of hosts. And we don't need the Pope. And, that, and so since that has come about, we have experienced the most tremendous uh, so, uh, subversion of our political independence and our sovereignty in this country. And it's been a war. It's been a political and a religious war that you've experienced, that you've been involved in, that you just didn't understand it, that you were involved with. And so it's a matter of waking you up out of your ignorance. It's a matter of expressing to you that this is a place where the sovereignty of the Vatican City is subordinate and where the, the, uh, the desire of priests to molest our children or to set up relig confessional religion where we have to tell them all of our secrets in order to please God. I mean, all those superstitions of the canon law of the old system of the Dark Ages, the medieval era, are gone. But they still are insisting that they're going to prosecute their doctrines and subordinate this country. And ultimately, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at that, that fight between national independence and global tyranny taking place in our own time. And we have to understand it. We have to understand that today we have, for the first time, March 13th, 2013, we elected the first Jesuit Pope in Mario Bergoglio. And we have to recognize what that means and who that order is. And it's time to stop just consigning everything that makes us afraid to the conspiracy bin. Uh, we're not talking about UFOs or reptilians. That's, that's all bullshit to get you off track. 
this is this is historical documented reality that you've lost track of and you're no longer aware of. So in order to make this a safer place for me and for you, it's time for you to educate yourself. So thank you for being here again at the Looking Glass Forum and learning about the suppressed history of the Lincoln assassination and about the, the, the doctrine of the temporal and spiritual power of the papacy.